Uh, We're in Acts chapter 15. Uh, Let me encourage you this morning before we read God's Word uh, about the importance of God's Word, and I know you know it, but uh, one of the things that that the Bible tells us to do is to say things over and over again. We're always called to bring to remembrance, uh, continually to remind ourselves of the things of God's Word, His truth, His characteristics. I want to encourage you with this. We stand under the authority of God's Word. It is uh, a light to our path. It nurtures us. It encourages us. It shapes us. And so we want to make sure that we appropriately respect God's Word. And, and so as, as, we, as we read God's Word together today, make sure your mind and your heart uh, before the Lord says, God, I want to hear from you. I want your Word to speak into my life. I, I want you to be the one who is speaking. And so whether you get anything out of the sermon or not, we can be all confident that as we read God's Word together today, He will speak through His Word. Amen? Amen. Why don't we stand together and let's read Acts chapter 15, 7 through 11. We're going to look at the whole chapter, but this is the focus text uh, for us. And it says, uh, Acts 15, 7 through 11. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And this is God's word. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, will you bless the reading of your word? We we read it today with joy. honoring the command to publicly proclaim your word. Father, help me now as I preach. Fill this place with your spirit and give us encouragement from your word that we would be faithful to you and true. Lord, we love you. We praise you. Let the name of Jesus be honored in this place. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You can be seated. You know, I think our lives are defined by a series of defining moments. And in some ways, those moments shape every other moment of our life. That's not to say that small decisions are unimportant. I think uh, the details of life every day, small faithfulness, uh, you know, small, small, small acts of kindness and love, or, man, those are vitally important. But there's a handful of big decisions that come down the pike uh, in your life and in mine that define every other decision. I really believe that's true. And I don't think that's just true for individuals. I think that's true for congregations of God's people. I think churches who have covenanted themselves together uh, under God's word in allegiance and, and, and with, with, with a desire to honor and love Jesus and, and to be his people, I think they, when they corporately come together to make decisions, they have defining moments and moments that will shape not only their future, but really the future of future congregations who bear their name, uh, their children, their grandchildren, those who are converted 20 years later will bear the benefits or the consequences of their decisions. And so there's these defining decisions that we are really forced to make. You know, there's, there's really not an opportunity to not decide things, is there? You know, there's, there, no decision is a decision, isn't it? And so we, we are forced to make some, some big decisions in life. And it's not just about kind of minor things. Sometimes we have to make big decisions about big things, like the gospel. In Acts chapter 15, if you've been following along in the sermon series, we've seen some remarkable things happen in the early church. We've seen uh, 
the Holy Spirit fall at Pentecost and thousands saved, praising the name of Jesus, honoring him, recognizing his rightful role and place in their life as Messiah, Savior, King, seated at the right hand of the Father. We see the, the, the birth and explosion of the church as thousands were added. We see the church persecuted and spread. We see the, 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 the movement at Antioch begin and, and new disciples brought in there. Uh, really, uh, in some ways, kind of a new church, uh, a whole new congregation established, uh, spread out from Jerusalem, and, and, and a really strong group of Christians. From there, we see Paul and Barnabas sent out on a missionary journey. And last week, we saw Paul and Barnabas go from city to city to city, proclaiming the word of God, backtrack back through those cities, appointing elders, establishing churches, uh, really consecrating those churches to the work of the Lord and saying, you are churches, proclaim God's word and, and, and continue in this ministry. And, and we'll come back and check on you later, but, but you're on your own. Go do this. And, and we're not, you don't have to have us to do this. You've got the Holy Spirit. You've got the gospel. Now be the church. And then they went back to Antioch and gave a report. And that's how Acts chapter 14 concludes. Was it was with this great report of what had happened in really kind of in, in, a, in a culminating way of all that God had been doing up until that point. That the gospel is going forward. The true word of Jesus proclaiming the forgiveness of sins in his name. Uh, the mighty, powerful works of God on display when his word and name is preached. And then Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Let's, let's look at that together. I just want you to see how this starts up here. Let's see if I can find that in my Bible. Uh, yeah, here we go. It says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers this. And here's the teaching that they were offering. This is Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Isn't that a, isn't that a troubling thing? Wouldn't it be troubling if I stood up here and told you that today? Unless you followed the customs. And let, let me just be clear. When we say circumcised according to the custom of Moses, uh, by this point in life, about everybody has either seen a computer or has one or uses one every other day or something. You know, you know, you got the screen, you got a little picture and you click that picture with your mouse and it opens up a bunch of other things, doesn't it? That one thing represents a lot of other things. That's how this statement is. This statement is packed full of meaning. When he says, um, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's like double-clicking an icon on a computer and opening up an entire piece of software program that has been hidden. You couldn't see it. What is that? It, it means the law, the prophets, and the old covenant. Fundamentally, what these folks were saying, they're coming down from Jerusalem, from that church in Jerusalem, to the church in Antioch, and they're proclaiming an alternate gospel. They say, you must agree with Moses and you must follow all the customs of Moses. And if you don't, you can't be, you can't be one of God's people. You will not be saved unless you do. That's a terrible thing to come and do. And it's happening right on the heels of the, of the greatest expansion of God's kingdom in the history of the world. Now, the, the, the scriptures are actually happening. The gospel is going into the nations. Uh, the Roman Empire spreads this, this huge amount of space in, in various small little nations throughout it. People are being converted. Every language, every tribe, every tongue. People are being converted town after town after town, covenanting together to be God's people, rightfully worshiping Jesus. And now Jews from Jerusalem are coming down saying, Jesus plus the gospel, I mean, excuse me, Jesus plus the law 
equals salvation. They're kind of bringing that, 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 that way of thinking, that, that talk. It's a, it's a defining moment for the church. What, what are you going to do when someone stands up and says, Jesus plus something equals salvation? Because what we've always understood the New Testament teaching about the Lord Jesus to be is Jesus alone brings us the kingdom of God. Jesus alone ushers us into the presence of God. Only by the work of Jesus, not our work, not our efforts, not even our own faithfulness toward Jesus makes it happen, but Jesus makes it happen for us. We trust and rely on him for that activity to occur in our life. Jesus brings us salvation. And so we've got this, this, this unfolding story, a maturing church. This, this isn't days and weeks after Pentecost. This is months and years after Pentecost. The church is beginning to mature and develop. New leaders have been established. And now a controversy arises about what it is at the strong core that we believe as New Testament Christians. Who gather in the name of Jesus. What do we believe about that? It's a defining moment for the church. It's a, def- it's a pivotal moment in the book of Acts. I-, I would suggest to you that if we don't get this right in the book of Acts, the rest of the book of Acts is pointless. But as we move through the rest of chapter 15, we see not only do they get it right, but they get it right in a big way. But it's important for us to make sure we work through this and understand how they got it right. What are some key truths? Before I, do, before I get into the key truths, let me just say this right up front. If you go to um, Acts 15, 15 through uh, basically 21, you see the answer. And here's the basic answer that comes from Peter and then ultimately from James. The gospel is enough. That's the answer. Now, they say more than that, but that is the core of everything they say. The gospel is enough. We will not bind on our Gentile brothers and sisters who don't follow our customs, who don't live by our dietary laws, who don't live by our social uh, norms. We will not bind on them other external things. We will call them to the gospel as we've been called to the gospel. The gospel is enough. They make a couple of pronouncements, which we'll talk about later in the message. But I, want, I, I, don't, I don't want anyone to be nervous. I don't want anyone to be nervous the whole sermon thinking, is the gospel enough? No, it is enough. It is enough. And they got it right in Acts chapter 15. But we want to follow the way they got to their answer. You remember in, in math class you had to show your work? Well, we, we, actually have to, we actually get to see how they showed their work. We see how they arrived at the conclusion the gospel is enough. And they reaffirmed what was already true. Let me tell you five truths that I, that I take from Acts chapter 15, uh, both 7 and 11, really the whole chapter. The first truth I want you to see is that the gospel is always at risk in every generation, including the first generation of the church. The gospel is always at risk in every generation including the first generation of the church. What do I mean by at risk? I mean, it's not safe. There's four things at a minimum that can happen to the gospel. You can lose the gospel. Someone could stop preaching the gospel, stop living the gospel, fail to teach it to their children, and it's gone in their family. Now, it doesn't mean it's gone from the earth. It doesn't mean it's not still in God's word, but it's gone from their life. The, the presence of the good news of Jesus could just disappear. They quit living by it. They quit following it. They quit teaching it. Quit proclaiming it. Now, that's not happening in most churches. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. But it is a possibility. If you were to look east a long ways, and I mean a long ways, go all the way to the eastern shore of our country, and then cross all the way over the pond called the Atlantic to Europe, 
you would see nation after nation after nation after nation, family after family after family after family, where the gospel is lost. Generations of people who believed in the name of the Lord Jesus and that salvation was only in his name who have lost the gospel. They drifted from it and they lost it. And and it's not there. It's just not there. That's not the only thing that can happen to the gospel. The gospel is at risk in every generation. It can be lost, but it can be compromised. I think this one happens more often. The gospel can be compromised because we believe it wholly, but then we'll sell it out in an area of our life because it's more convenient for us to live a different way than by the gospel. We're not saying we don't believe it. We're not even really trying to change it. We're just kind of ignoring it in a spot. So we'll have this issue in our life or that issue in our life or this issue in our family or that issue at work or this attitude of the heart or mind or this habit of life. We still say we believe the gospel. We still go to church and in every other area of our life we do, but we compromise on just that one area. The gospel is at risk. It can be lost. It can be compromised. The gospel is at risk. It can be corrupted. That's what we see in Acts chapter 15. What, what, what we mean by corruption is when we reach over here and we grab something that doesn't belong in the message of the gospel, and then we insert it into the message of the gospel, we screw it in tight, and then we proclaim it with it. So what did they do? They took the law, which is right and good. All right, we don't want to diminish the law. The law is right and good and has its proper place in the life of the Christian. It's just not to save you. And it's just not something you should trust your life to. Because you can't keep it. Peter said that. Why would we burden these Gentiles with what neither our fathers nor we could bear? All right? The law is important. We'll talk about that more in a minute. They took the law. They screwed it into the message really tight. And then they presented it as if that had always been there. It's a corruption. They corrupted the gospel. Not only can you lose the gospel, compromise the gospel, or corrupt the gospel, you can co-opt the gospel. And this one happens a lot. What do we mean by co-opt? You take the gospel of Jesus and then you use it for something else. Use it to raise money. Use it to prop up an organization. Use it to get elected to office. Use it to gather business clients. Use it to make peace in the family. Well, fine, I'll go to church. I'll even get baptized if it'll make everybody happy. That's not the gospel, is it? No, no, no. No, Jesus calls us to a serious commitment to following him. And he doesn't intend for us to take his work, his life, his ministry, and misappropriate it or misbelieve it or misuse it. First, the first truth from Acts chapter 15 we need to learn this morning is that the gospel is always at risk in every generation. It can be lost, compromised, corrupted, or co-opted. That's real. The second thing that you need to know this morning, this number two truth, is that the greatest risk to the gospel is not what you think it is. The greatest risk to the gospel does not come from without we, we, we would look at the persecuted church in the, in the New Testament. We would look at the persecuted church throughout the history of the world. And we'd say, there's a risk to the gospel. That, that, that does damage to the gospel. You know what is almost always the case? This isn't always true. But it is almost always the case that when, when serious persecution breaks out against the church, God gives special grace, special power, special unction to those believers. And they stand up. Their backbones are stiffened. Their tolerance for pain goes through the roof and they boldly proclaim Jesus in a way that brings honor and glory to his name. It is almost always the case that when persecution breaks out, the church thrives. Almost always. The risk that we face is not from without. The risk that we face is from within. People who say they believe the gospel may actually believe it 
and then teach something contrary. They screw some kind of other thing into it, tighten it down, and present it like it was always supposed to be there. The risk to the gospel is not from outside. Today, there are thousands of people in Woodward, Oklahoma, who chose not to come worship the risen Lord Jesus in church. It's no judgment. It's just true. And, and let's, let's just exempt everyone who is a Christian who chose not to worship for whatever. They were sick. They were, you know, worked late last night and couldn't wake. You know, they only had two hours of sleep. For whatever reason, they, they weren't. And I don't mean just here. Just in any of the churches that proclaim the good news of Christ. There are thousands of people who every day say no to Jesus in Woodward, Oklahoma. Are they really a threat to the gospel? No, they're not, honestly. They don't believe it. Most of them don't care about it. They're waiting for someone to demonstrate it to them, that it's true and alive and full of power and is the answer to their life, but they're not the threat. You know what the threat to the gospel is? Christians who believe it and misuse it, misappropriate it, misbehave with it, co-opt it, corrupt it, compromise it, lose it. That's the risk. You know what the correction to that risk is? The third truth I want you to know this morning, the correction to the risk of the gospel, the threat that is from within, is the Word of God. But it's not just the Word of God. It's not just the Word of God. It is the Word of God as understood through the life, ministry, and exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's a problem for you. Someone shows up to your church, and they begin to teach you from the Word of God that everything you believe from the Word of God is untrue. What do you do about that? Well, that's what happened in Acts chapter 15. It really is. So Judaizers from Judea, from the church in Jerusalem, come down to Antioch. And they say, no, no, you've got to believe in the Old Testament. You've got to believe in the old rules and the old laws. You've got to believe in the old customs. You've got to believe these things in order to be saved because it's in the Word of God. That's actually true. It is in the Word of God. But it's not true that you've got to believe it that way. The Word of God is a progressive movement culminating in Christ, all of it pointing forward to Jesus. We live looking backward to Jesus and looking forward to a future hope. The word of God as understood through the life, ministry, and exaltation of Jesus Christ is the corrective. So here's the word. Gospel begets gospel. How do you keep the gospel? You preach the gospel. How do you preach the gospel? You read the gospel. You read the gospel. You interpret the Bible through the gospel. The gospel will beget the gospel in your life. The gospel will reproduce itself in your mind and in your heart. And the gospel will come out of you when you fill your life with it. What's the correction? What's the law of Moses to do with this? Well, we need to preach the gospel there. But the problem was they weren't sure. They had a real conflict. And as they had this conflict, they said, we need to appeal to the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. We need an answer because this is a big deal. This is a defining moment. What if... They're right and we're wrong. Then we've taught people the wrong thing. We, we've stepped in a place we shouldn't step. We, we've made a mistake. It's a defining moment. So they go up to Jerusalem. They present their case. And in Acts chapter 15 verse 5, it says some, some believers who were from the party of the Pharisees stood up and they said the same thing that was said in Antioch. You must adhere to the law of Moses and the customs in order to be saved. Wow. The gospel's been moving forward, figuratively speaking, for 14 chapters. And here we hit a roadblock. And the roadblock is the word of God. How do we interpret the word of God in light of Jesus? These folks were doing it wrong. They weren't rightly recognizing 
the fullness of who Christ was and what he had done for us at the cross and what our new role was in trusting him. They didn't understand. They were misusing the Old Testament. The corrective for the gospel was the word of God as understood through the life of Jesus. The fourth principle I want you to see this morning flows out of that. If you go to Acts chapter 15, verses 15 through 18, can we put that one up? Acts 15, 15 through 18 says this, um, And with these words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from the old. So, so what does that mean? Okay, so let's, let's make sure we get this in the right context. They're in Jerusalem. Peter stands up and he, he says what we read, 7 through 11. And then James, who is the pastor of the church, that's best we can tell. James is kind of the authoritative figure in the church at Jerusalem. He gives this ruling. He says, when we read the prophets, and this is Amos. When we read Amos, we read that God intends to restore Israel, but not by herself. He restores Israel through the confession of Jesus through the right proclamation of the gospel, through the gospel going through Jesus to the Gentile world. And these Gentiles coming to the gospel, coming to trust Christ, are the evidence that God is at work in our midst. That's what James says. What does he do? He takes the word of God and rightly understands it through the ministry of Jesus. And he, and he gives us these three things. The gospel flows from the mission of God. It's always been the intention of God to bring the Gentiles to himself. Always been his intention. It has never been his intention to only have a small people for himself, but through that people and through his son to demonstrate his glory to the world. That's always been his goal. The gospel flows from the mission of God. The gospel now calls us, this present generation, in that, that, that day, that generation, to this mission. So why does Paul go to the Gentiles? Because it was the mission of God. That's why the gospel called him to go there. And the gospel brings clarity to the mission of God. What is the mission of God? Oh, oh, oh. you got to believe in the law. You must, you must, you must succumb to, to the rites and rituals that Moses taught us. Wait a minute. Is that the gospel? No, it's not the gospel. No, no, that's not the gospel. The right preaching of the gospel brings clarity to the mission of God. So what we want to understand in Acts chapter 15 is that when we get the story right, it all begins to make sense. When we get the story right, it makes all the difference in our lives. We understand that the gospel, the fifth principle, is not built on law-keeping. It is never built on law-keeping. The gospel frees us from law-keeping as a means of achieving righteousness. Now, you're not free from the law in the sense that the law matters, that the law should be observed, that the law is righteous and good and true and really a gracious thing from God that he would speak to us about how he would have us live. But you are freed from it in the sense that by keeping it, you make yourself righteous. No. How are we righteous? Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our righteousness. You know why? Because he's a faithful law keeper. He's a faithful law keeper. I'm a faithless law keeper because I fail in it. But Jesus is faithful in it. And when I trust in him, his, his faithful law keeping is given to me as a gift. I get to wear it like a royal robe. I get invited into his family because he 
is the true son of God, the righteous one. So what are the five things we need to see from this text? Acts chapter 15, 7 through 11, really the whole chapter. The gospel's at risk in every generation. The greatest risk to the gospel is from people in the church confessing Jesus, misappropriating the gospel and the word of God. The corrective for the gospel is the word of God taught through the life and ministry of Jesus. Gospel begets gospel. Getting the story right makes all the difference. You get the wrong story, you're going to be messed up. That's just true. If you tell the wrong story, if you tell a story that ends with, and you need to keep the law in order to be saved, you've told the wrong story. But if you tell this story, and God's son Jesus kept the law perfectly for you, he kept the old covenant, he kept the Old Testament perfectly righteous, and it is now caught up and complete in him. It's a box with a bow on it, done in Jesus. When you tell that story and you say, salvation is found in no other name under heaven but Jesus, you've told the right story. And when we proclaim, the fifth truth is when we proclaim a gospel that's not built on law keeping but is built solely on the righteousness of Jesus, we have proclaimed the right thing. But that gospel always comes that gospel always comes, and hear this now, with accompanying effects and practices. James didn't stop when he said they got the gospel right. What did he say? He said three things, basically. He said, one, we are not going to put a burden on these Gentile brothers and sisters. We will receive them and accept them, just as we've been received and accepted freely. You know what he was saying there? He says, we're going to tear down all these walls that used to be between us and them. The gospel flattens out ethnic, social, economic, racial divisions. And it says all are welcome at the foot of the cross. All. Everyone. Anyone who would turn to Jesus is welcome. And anyone who would turn to Jesus, if you're a Christian, is now your brother or your sister. Anyone. Everyone is welcome at the foot of the cross. doesn't mean everyone comes. It means the grace of God has gone out and everyone is now welcome. And in the church, there ought not be any walls between people. There ought not be any divisions of race or gender or class or economic status. Nothing. No. The Gentiles will not be burdened, was James' answer. The other, those that are not us, they're welcome. That's his answer. That's the first thing I want you to see. That's the accompanying effect of the gospel. It's not a law. It's a reality. When you believe this, when you believe in the gospel, this becomes a reality. The second one is these folks were coming out of uh, cultures that were immersed in idol worship. They were just, they were deeply immersed in it. And James said, it is really important that you rid yourselves of this idol worship because it will corrupt your gospel. It will corrupt your belief in Jesus. You have to rid yourself of it. And, and the third thing that he said, he said more than that, but it had to do with the animal sacrifices about what they ate. But it really all has to, that all had to do with idol worship. And, and the last thing that he said was, and you should flee from sexual immorality. And I, I'm not going to unpack that. We've got a mixed crowd here today. But let me, it's enough to say this. These were very corrupt practices in the cultures. If we think we have uh, a depraved culture, it was just as depraved then. Just as depraved then. Because of idol worship, because of of lots of reasons. God didn't come down and declare the body sinful or those practices, sexuality sinful. No, no. What he said instead was, no, no. Return to covenant marriage. One man, one woman, 
making a family in my name, having children in my name. Return to that. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. That's a picture of Jesus in the church, a husband, a wife. Flee sexual immorality, run to covenant marriage was what that meant. It's not a law. It's the accompanying practice of the gospel. When the gospel shows up, we learn to rightly respect one another. And men and women learn to rightly respect each other as they ought to before the Lord under the word of God. So we've got these five principles that we learned from Acts 15. A false gospel is introduced. The church is divided over it. They're not sure what to do. They go back to Jerusalem. And we learn from the way they handled this, these things. The gospel's at risk. The threat to the gospel comes from within. The word of the gospel taught through Jesus is the corrective. Get the story right, you get the gospel right. And we don't earn our salvation by law keeping. Those are the five great principles. All right, you ready for this? Nobody at Subway last week, nobody at Subway last week had someone come up to him and say, you're not going to heaven because you didn't keep the law. I bet nobody in this room had that happen. No one down at United said, you've not kept the law of Moses, so you're not going to heaven. You're not, you're not going. No one, was, no one was over at the movie theater and needed uh, watching a, a show and going to the mall and had someone come up and you know, tap them on the shoulder and say, you didn't keep the law last week. You're not going to heaven. This probably is no one's experience, is it? I didn't have this experience last week. No one said these things to me. So does that mean this text has no application to us? It doesn't. Here's the application. Since the gospel was at risk in that generation, I should assume the gospel is at risk in my generation. You know who the gospel is at risk from? People just like you and me who can get it wrong. Who can allow sin to develop a root in our hearts and cause us to compromise the gospel. Meaning we'll ignore something in our life that God wants us to not ignore corrupt the gospel, co-opt the gospel, begin to lose the gospel in that we don't teach it well to our children and our grandchildren, begin to lose the power of the gospel in our lives. We become the problem, right? And it's not simply the issue of law keeping that can be inserted into the gospel to make it corrupt. No, no. There's lots of things that you can add into the gospel. Here, let me give you a little symbol. So Jesus plus law equals salvation, according to these guys. That's wrong. We would say Jesus alone brings the salvation of God. But let me offer this to you in this generation. Jesus plus being a good American. Jesus plus being a hard worker. Jesus plus paying your bills on time. Jesus plus not cussing, drinking, or going with girls who do. Jesus plus not going to the pool hall. Whatever. Jesus plus morality doesn't make you a Christian. Jesus plus being a good old boy. Jesus plus whatever. Doesn't make you a Christian. Jesus alone is our hope and righteousness. Only him. Are these other things important? Of course they're important. I don't think any of you should go around with girls who drink or smoke or chew. I don't think any of you should do that. Seriously. Morality, of course, is important. But we don't find our righteousness in it. No, no. So, so what is the application of Acts 15 for us? One, we recognize that the greatest threat to the gospel in my life is me. I have the greatest opportunity to wreck my own faith. I do. I'm the one who can shipwreck this deal by not trusting the word of God, by not humbly submitting to the word of God, by not yielding myself to the Holy Spirit, by not coming back time and time again and proclaiming the good news in my life so that gospel will beget gospel. I must, point one, I must truly leave the message of Jesus and embrace it with my life. 
This isn't just truths to know in my head. Those aren't just waters to take a dip in. I embrace Jesus. And I know that his kingdom is the true reality of my world. I need to realize that apart from the work of God in me, I will lose, I will compromise, I will corrupt, or I will co-opt the gospel. I've got to stay close to the word of God. I've got to stay close to the story of Jesus so that his story becomes my story. Let me, let me flip something around for you. We, we, we often say things like, I, I want to learn how to apply the Bible to my life. Let's flip this around and say, I need to learn how to apply my life to the kingdom of God. I need, I need to do that. We need to flip that around. The kingdom of God is the reality. I've got to learn how to apply my life to that. Let's make the kingdom of God and the work of Jesus the central thing. And I'm trying to lay my life over on that and get involved in it. Third thing I want you to know is that apart from Christ and his work in my life, I will be an idolater. I just will. So will you. You'll make an idol of money or power or self or pride, country, friendship, relationship, marriage, family, children. You name it, you can make an idol of it. We're all idol makers in our hearts. But the gospel come and, comes and frees us from that. It really does. It frees us from the need to have little idols set up all in our life that we bow down and worship and that we try to control and use to displace God. Now, the gospel brings the, the presence of God close, Emmanuel, God with us. And the fourth thing I need to know, and here's where we close this morning, is that defining moments are going to come to my life where I have to make decisions. And as a church, we have to make decisions about what I believe and we believe about the gospel. Hear this. If you don't hear anything else, make sure you hear this. Some of you today came and your heart was full of faith and your mind was on Jesus and your, your affections were appropriately set with him and your heart and your emotion were tied up right there. Maybe you were singing a hymn in your head this morning. You were praising the Lord. You, maybe you, you've already thought about God's word before you came to worship. And you were appropriately focused on Jesus. And you had it all clear, straight in your mind, that my righteousness comes from him and my effort is to trust. That's my job. And I'm going to obey Jesus. Maybe you had that right. And I praise God for that. But I know there are some people in a room of this size who came heartbroken and burdened, troubled, harried on the inside and on the out. And maybe you're unsure about whether you can actually trust Jesus. Maybe you're unsure about whether Jesus can really repair your relationship, whether he can really help you in your work, whether he really is going to come through and be a faithful God to you. And you're not sure what you believe, and you're right on the precipice of saying, Jesus, I'm not going to give up on Jesus, but I'm going to say Jesus plus some other thing. And you're going to start trusting in something else. You're at a, you're at a, a pivotal point in your life. We all get there, don't we? If you're not there today, I want you to remember this. And when you come to that pivotal point, I want you to, I want you to declare it for what it is because that's exactly what Paul did. If Acts 15 is a good model for us, when a threat of the gospel comes to my life, what should I do? Declare it as such, appeal to the word of God, and let the story of Jesus define and shape for me how I move forward and I defeat that lie and I move forward in the truth. Church, I want you to do that. I want you to do that. I want you to move forward in the gospel of Jesus and defeat the lies of the enemy that would tell you to believe Jesus plus something else, to be righteous and trust, trust in him. And if, and if your life is crashing, that's the perfect time to trust more in him 
And if you need help from the body, you come to the body and let the body love you and encourage you and build you up and strengthen your arms just like we're called to do. But let's make sure we get that first thing right. We don't believe Jesus plus something else. We hold fast to him alone. We hold fast to him alone. Is today a defining moment? I don't know. I'm thankful that we're not at a point in the life of our church that we're questioning the gospel. But instead, we proclaim the gospel boldly without apology from the pulpit. I'm so thankful for that. But that doesn't mean everybody who attends that the interior part of their life is okay. And I want you to know that if you're struggling, if there's hardship in your life, and if, you're, if there's doubt, hey, this is a safe place, and Jesus is a safe person to run to. And he can handle, he can handle your stuff. But don't, don't insert something else in there and try to screw something in alongside Jesus, because one thing he won't do is share. He's not very good at sharing. He doesn't want to share his place of authority and truth and service and love in, in your life. He, he wants to be the king only, uniquely. He doesn't want to share that with anyone else or any other thing that you would substitute. So if you're at a defining moment today, a defining point where you're not sure about Jesus, I want to talk to you about him. I'll talk to you about him here. We can meet after. There are other men and women in this room that would love to pray with you and encourage you and and if you're a member of the church, there's plenty of support for you, and you know that. And if you're, if you're a new person here and you don't know about Christ, but you're interested in the things of the gospel, come talk to us. Let us share with you the good news of Jesus and his salvation. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. We proclaim it boldly with confidence, not because of who we are, but because of the risen Christ. Help us now, O Lord. Help us now. When we come to these pivotal points these defining moments that we would move toward the gospel and we would not add other things in, but we would say Christ alone, Christ alone. Help us now, Lord Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.